This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Gary Linnell, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Now, we had you in the office back when, pre-COVID, to talk about, what was the last book called? Buckley's Chat? It feels like about 250 years ago or so when when <laughs> we did that, when William Buckley was alive. Um, yeah, it was uh, the story about the convict William Buckley and how he escaped um, in Victoria and ended up living with the Wadarung people for 30 years. That's right, yes. And we had a really good chat about that. Now, there's yes. a movie actually being made about it now, so um, they're still trying to get all the funds up for it. But hopefully that'll hit the big screens in the next oh, yeah. few years. That's great. And now let me introduce you. Gary is one of Australia's most respected Walkley Award-winning journalists, having previously worked as an editor-in-chief of The Bulletin, editor of The Daily Telegraph, and editorial director of Fairfax. As a writer, he has written books about both sports stars and notorious criminals. His latest book, and the book we're talking about today, is called The Devil's Work, which tells the story of the late 19th century serial killer who became a suspect in the Jack the Ripper killings. Oh, my God. I tell you, I am sick of women being murdered. Yeah. I tell you, it's happened a lot over history, throughout history, hasn't it? Hasn't so, it? Hasn't it? I think oh, it, part yeah. of the attraction for me in this story was the which I never quite really understood until I started working on the book, was the fascination that the world has had with Jack the Ripper over the last 120, 130 years or so. And I guess you could say it's the world's longest ongoing cold case murder mystery. Mm. But it was also the nature of those crimes. It wasn't just simply murder. It was the butchering of the victims as well, which sort of shocked um, you know, Victorian England and, and the rest of the world. And when I began looking at this, this story of a, a guy called Frederick Deeming, who was a suspect in those Jack the Ripper killings, but he was also a notorious bigamist. Um, he travelled the world as a con man. He was always swindling people. And it turns out that he, he'd murdered his first wife and his four children, mm. which um, is quite um, unbelievable. Mm. But then on top of that, he murdered his second wife when he brought her out to Australia and buried her underneath the hearthstone of a rented house in Melbourne. And he, he, he just murdered her. He got on a ship to Sydney and met another young girl, a 19-year-old girl. He proposed marriage to her. He was a serial bigamist. Like, he just couldn't help himself. He was always asking women to marry him. And uh, she agreed. And it was only because they, there was a national manhunt and they managed to track him down just before she arrived in Western Australia in a very small mining town called Southern Cross. She was going to meet him there and get married to him. And he'd already ordered, ordered a couple of barrels of cement, presumably to do the same to her as he had done to two of his previous wives and his four children, because his, his modus operandi was always to bury his victims under a, several layers of thick concrete. 
Mm. And it was only because he did a botched job on it in Melbourne mm. that he was eventually discovered in the first place. But he's a the 19th century as the 20th century, and unfortunately, as our century is turning out to be, I mean, the crimes against women have been ongoing. Uh, I mean, it's, it's obviously something that's happened right throughout human history, but the viciousness of some of these crimes is quite remarkable. And Deeming was a completely different kettle of fish. He was, you know, there was a mad side, a really mad side to him. And I think that's why his crimes captivated Australia. It was the biggest story in 1892 by a long way. Uh, there were 10,000 people who gathered in the streets of Melbourne on the morning of his execution just to make sure that the rope had been put around his neck. The New York Times covered it on its front page every day, as did all of the London newspapers. Um, and the Victorian colonial government at the time were that embarrassed by all of this bad publicity that they executed him three weeks after the trial, which was wow. an incredibly short space of time. But I don't think anyone would have disagreed with it either. I think mm. they were all keen to see get rid of him. And I, and I think that's kind of why many people forgot about this story over the years. And I only stumbled across it uh, a couple of years ago. I was doing a little bit of research on a side project on Alfred Deakin, our second prime minister who uh, was also the architect of Australia's constitution. And in 1892, uh, he and his family had lost a small fortune, 300 pounds back then, in speculating on the great property boom that was taking place all around Australia. Because back in the 1890s, uh, Australians believed that they were set to become the most populated country on earth. There were projection, ridiculous projections that Melbourne was going to have 20 to 30 million people living there by the 1920s. And so this really pushed through, you know, real estate agents were driving a lot of this. Uh, they got the property prices up and then it collapsed naturally. And it was just an astonishing time. And Deacon actually had to go back to the law and practice as a barrister to make money for his family. And in May uh, 1892, he ended up defending Frederick Deeming uh, during his murder trial. He was obviously unsuccessful with that defence. But the fascinating thing was that both men had a very similar, or shared a very similar passion, I guess, for spiritualism. Frederick Deeming would claim during his trial that uh, his dead mother, the ghost of his dead mother, came to him at two o'clock every morning and urged him to kill all of these women. Mm -hmm. And uh, Alfred Deacon was a committed spiritualist. He believed since he was about the age of 16 that he could speak to the dead and then he uh, controlled people around him just by using the powers of his mind. His wife, Patty, she was a spirit medium, so she would host seances at their home on Saturday nights. Um, spirits would you, come. In, and, in your own mind, you can get away with so much if you're religious. Oh, right? absolutely. And, you can get you know, away with so much. You can. And what happened back in the 1890s and through the second half of the 19th century, both here, the United States and throughout Europe, was this collision that was taking place between traditional religion and this quasi-religious movement called spiritualism. Mm. And spiritualism kind of offered everyone a get-out clause because mm. it told everyone that there was this fantastic place called the afterlife where your spirit went up to, and then you just sort of floated around and at will on a Saturday night when um, all of those alive were gathered in the parlour or the living room holding a seance, you could push objects around on the widgie board and you could sort of throw rose petals into the, into the room and people believed that your spirit was there communicating with them. And for many people, obviously, this was a great comfort. You know, I mean, you see people even these days, mm -hmm. there are well-known psychics who have made a, a fortune 
out of telling people in huge stadiums that yes, I'm getting a I'm getting word now that I think you're uh, Auntie Mav- Mavis, is it, or Auntie Ida? Um, yes, one of those two. She's trying to get in contact with you because she's passed on, but she wants to tell you that she's very well in the afterlife and she looks forward to seeing you. So this has been going on for time immemorial, but yeah. um, particularly in the late 19th century. Spiritual, it was a hotbed of spiritualism on the east coast of Australia and Sydney and Melbourne were the headquarters for that. But I would argue, Gary, that we're at that place now. Oh, no. You know what? That's a good theory because if you have a look at how the pandemic has sort of upended our, our, the way that we saw the world. I was talking about a friend uh, this the other day that you even sit down and watch a movie now. And you're watching people walk around crowded train stations with no masks or they're yep. not holding their breath when they walk past someone in the supermarket. Yeah. That's a completely different world to us yeah. now. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and and my kids are my son's in his early thirties, my daughter's in her late twenties, their lives have been on hold for yeah. two years. They can't yeah. go on they can't go on dates. So I think there has been a, a swing back to this kind of thing that mm. um, you know, maybe there is something better. Maybe mm. there is something after uh, that sort of transcends our normal existence on the on this world. And, and it's, it's a natural thing for us to hunger for. We're human beings. I can understand that need to know. I mean, I'm a rationalist and, and a cynic uh, mm-hmm. and very sceptical of this stuff. I'd love to believe it, and I'm very jealous of people who do believe that there is an afterlife and there's someone that gives you a confidence and it gives you the surety to know that see, there's I a see, meaning to life. You know? I say it differently, Gary. I think, yeah, maybe. But, you know, I don't believe in the afterlife. I believe this is it. So you just get one one chance. But I feel that if you've got one chance, this is the time to be better, not to wait mm. to be better and to be blessed and to be an angel and to in the afterlife. Let's do that right now, right here. I mean, I would argue that since Trump came in, uh, Donald Trump, that the divisiveness globally has grown immensely. And I think that, I mean, he wasn't religious at all, but he he would side with the religious right. Any way to be, and I, I'm only mentioning him because I think that's a marker in history, in modern history, where we are heading down this track of divisiveness and COVID yeah, has only made it worse. Absolutely. I think you're right. And, and the, the vax, anti-vax yes, split yes. that's happened now. Yes. I, I think it's there's always been that scar that has um, been driven through society, yeah. and I think people like Trump just picked at the scab and mm. and let it absolutely, loose, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and that's what they've done. And yeah. now we're seeing the proliferation of all of these wacky, crazy ideas, yeah, that are just growing, and it's being fed by Facebook, social media, yeah. And at a time when in history, when never before have we humans had access to so much information and so many facts. Mm-hmm. We've never had the technology and science that in the mm-hmm. past that we have now, and yet there is so much mis and disinformation going around mm-hmm. that it's astonishing. And mm-hmm. people can suddenly suddenly start believing in so much fake news. Yeah, phrase, and and getting back to your book and getting back to murders and serial murders, talk to me about that. Have we evolved over the years, or is it it's still happening all of the time? I mean, look at that case in America recently where two kids go out camping and he comes back. He feels, you know, it's the Gabby Pepito, I think her name is, and he comes back thinking that he can just drive into his mother's parents' driveway you know, the girlfriend's nowhere to be found, probably murdered by him. And that guy feels that that's okay to do that. That's what's shocking to me is 
I don't know how much we've changed. Well, I, th- I think it's just the rapid change that we've experienced, particularly over the last 200 years, that we've always been a vicious species. If you go back to the ancient world and you look at the ancient Romans and the um, what happened in Mesopotamia and, and all of those sort of places, you're talking real brutality. They pull people's eyeballs out and they cut oh. their tongues off and oh. they torture them slowly. They, they yeah. celebrated torture. Right. Now, we lo- we like to think that we have completely changed, but I think we you know we're essentially the same animal, and we've just got a better set of looking clothes that we wear. But deep down, our nature hasn't really caught up with all of the other changes that have happened in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I think um, philosophers and scientists have tried to explain this for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. and they still haven't come up with an adequate explanation about why our species kills its own. And kills mainly women. And you'll remember this when, so we're both from Sydney, and when the cross was locked down because of those king hits where those two young men were were killed and terrible, terrible crimes. However, over 300 women were killed in the cross and nobody, well, actually none none of those murders ever made the headlines, but two men get killed in the cross and all of a sudden we shut the district down. That's pretty telling, isn't it? It tells you a lot about our values and where we place our priorities in society. And what I'm saying, that it seems to be acceptable. I mean, that we have accepted. We don't like it, of course, but we've accepted that men kill women. Yeah, I I think there has been a shift. I mean, do you? Every man I know finds it repulsive. Absolutely. And every man I know, absolutely. Yes. But but who are are they? Where are they? They're there. They're 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 still, and they're out there, and there are potential perpetrators out there right now. Yeah, there's going to be some sort of violence perpetrated on a woman. What is it? Every two hours or every hour around Australia. Yeah, worse in some other nations as well. Yeah. So when you have a look at our the advances that we've made, maybe we haven't come that as far as we like to think we have. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why do you think this case wasn't as famous as Jack the Ripper? Why do you think most Australians don't know about it? Because I didn't know about it until I picked up the book. Well, I didn't know about it until I came across this mention of Alfred Deacon defending him. Yeah. And I thought, why wasn't I told about this in uh, history class in, in high school? Because it was such a huge story and i think with with those kinds of crimes we we tend to think that and particularly colonial australia this was an embarrassment the fact that this mass murderer had been traveling around the country and he'd killed his first wife the publicity was just notorious to have 
Melbourne being mentioned on the front page of the New York Times, not just as this, as the latest home of this serial killer, but also Melbourne was getting a lot of other bad publicity because the reporter who was covering the whole trial for him was a guy called Sidney Dickinson. Mm. He was a, he was a spiritualist. His wife was a medium and a palm reader. And three days before Deeming was executed, they were able to get a pass to go into the Melbourne jail and interview him. And they also took some plaster of Paris, a wet batch of it. They made it up. They passed it through the bars of the cell and Deeming put his hand in there so they could get an imprint and they could then study the lines of his hand and sort of determine whether or not he'd been born an instinctive criminal or, or, or how, or whether or not he was Jack the Ripper indeed. So... Sidney Dickinson was also writing stories back to New York saying that Melbourne was the smelliest city in the world and he'd been to Rome, he'd been to so many places around the globe, but he'd never encountered the stink that rose up from the streets of Melbourne. And mm-hmm. back in 1892, they were only just starting to talk about building that city's first sewerage system. So what happened is that every morning, everyone would empty their chamber pots out in the gutters and that's 400,000 chamber pots and they'd all run, trickle down the gutters and into the Yarra River. And this great sludgy brown thing would just meander its way through the side of the city. And on a hot northerly wind summer's day, they say it was unbelievable, the odour that rose from, from that city. So they were getting all of this bad publicity as well. And I think once he was executed, everyone just sort of dusted their hands off and said, thank God that's over. Let's just move on and forget about it. And, you know, gradually over the years, there were fewer and fewer mentions of Frederick Deeming to the point where he just became another one of those sort of forgotten figures from the 19th century. Mm. It's interesting. Have you always had an interest in true crime? To be honest, no. And um, I've never been an aficionado. There are people out there who are crazy for it. And you only need to look at the success of a lot of podcasts and, as you know, Mm -hmm. in, uh, in books. Uh, true crime uh, is really hot, and particularly it's become very, very trendy in the pandemic. Uh, those true crime documentaries on Netflix and Stan have you know, garnered huge audiences. And there is something clearly compelling about our fascination with not just crime but serious murder. Mm. Uh, and I'm just thinking of some of the cases. I've, I've been watching a few in the mm. last few weeks. So a lot of it turns me off. You know, I, oh, don't, yeah. I don't want to watch it, but I... I'm also drawn to it. It's mm. almost hypnotising in a way. I think. Well, I've been I've been a bookseller for you know for longer than I'd like to remember. But when I was working on the shop floor many many years ago, we'd always have a true crime section, and there was a lot of stealing of books at the time. And you know they'd take them to a place on George Street and resell them. And the biggest stolen category was always true crime. So the criminals were <laughs> stealing the criminal books. But oh. it was it, it was it was really interesting. But you know largely in those sections, you know, 90% of the perpetrators would have been men, the true crime stories. Yeah, and but yeah. also it's, it garners a huge audience among women, true crime. It does, it does. And yeah, a lot of the podcasts these days about true crime are hosted by women, and it's quite interesting. And During Frederick Deeming's trial in Melbourne, the newspapers at the time, the Age, Herald, the Argus, they were all tut-tutting because they couldn't believe the number of women who were trying to get tickets because it was a ticketed affair to get into the Supreme Court. And a lot of these young women were getting tickets to go in because they wanted to sit in the front row and stare at this monster. And there was this obsession and almost fascination with with the character. 
And they, could, they were scratching their head. It's a little like, I guess, you know, when you read about the stories about women who write letters to guys on death row in, in the United States. And women who fall in love with prisoners. Prisoners and get married to them without yes. ever having met them in the, in the flesh until that yes. final meeting. I don't get that at all, and I have no understanding of it. I know there's been a lot of psychological studies done over the years, but no one's ever provided a clear answer as to this attraction that you know true crime and killers have for certain sections of the community. And it ranges from young people to older people like mm. us and particularly to a, a key demographic group of young women who find it extremely compelling mm. and fascinating. And it, mm. for many of them, it's almost like seeing a rock star. Mm. Now, there's, there's that, that kind of it too. I mean, I don't, mm. I don't want to get into a long analysis of it, but it is, it is very, very interesting the way that we are obsessed, I think, is a pretty liberal state of it. And we're obsessed with crime fiction as well, like, you know, whether it's true or not. I mean, crime fiction, as you know, is a huge genre. Gary, I want to know a little bit about your career um, because we like to ask writers on this podcast how they came to writing because you've been writing books for a long time, haven't you? Yeah, I, I had a long stint where I didn't because I had a lot of editing jobs. So editor-in-chief of the Bulletin, editor of the Daily Telegraph, director of News and Current Affairs for Channel 9, and then Fairfax. It was almost 20 years where I was sitting in management chairs and copping lots of heat and pressure and no one really loving me at all. And um, I always wanted to get back to writing. I mean, I've, I've written ever since I had a pen in my hand and I used to fill up exercise books when I was six and seven writing science fiction stories. I was a science fiction nut when I was a kid. I was always going to become a science fiction novelist. So that was a given. <laughs> yeah, that was a given. But then I, I sort of fell into journal. Well, I wanted to become a journo and yeah. write and travel the world and, and still yeah. write. And I, so I did a few books back then. A lot of them were sports-based. Uh, but I wanted to get back into some sort of meteor subjects. So I was on radio for about four or five years until about three or four years ago. And when that finished, the opportunity came up to stay home and write books, which is something I've really, uh, that's been my lifetime ambition and I've been lucky enough to get that chance. So this is the third book I've done in three years. Uh, I'm probably taking a break now for six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a few other things. I'm going to a novel that I want to write. And, oh, fantastic. Is it, yeah, is it the, a genre novel? Yeah, it's well, it's, no, it's hard to describe. I don't want to go right, into it. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm superstitious about projects. Sure. Once you start talking about it, it leaves your mind and is suddenly out there and you've lost something of it, about right. it. And I'm not too sure what it is, but it's like I used to scoff at, at authors and I'd hear interviews by them and they'd say, oh, I live and breathe my books and my characters and, uh, you know, I even have dreams about them. I thought, oh, come on, please, give me a break. That doesn't happen. But you know what? Over the last three years, but William Buckley and then Captain Moonlight, the gay bush ranger, and now Frederick Beaming, I've had dreams about all of them and I wake up in the morning and sometimes they're not pretty dreams. And it's because you spend nine hours a day researching every part of their character, you're devouring thousands of pages of old newspapers, you're reading their journals and you suddenly become part of that world. And, you know, for to write about Victorian England, you know, those misty smoke-filled mm. alleyways and streets with men with top hats and handlebar moustaches and, you know, the rich smell of cigars, you get a sense of what it felt like, what it felt like, um, what the people were like, what they believed in, and you become immersed in that world. And so my apologies to all of those authors over the years, <laughs> and I've always just nodded my head and thought, you're a wanker. 
Uh, no, you're not. I now, <laughs> now I appreciate and finally understand. Our headline for this podcast is going to be Gary Linnell apologises. Well, no, I'll I, tell you what, we'll get a lot of listeners for that. <laughs> we will. I want to just ask you, when you are researching characters, is it, do you, because you develop a relationship with that person without a doubt, right? Yep. You know, you get to know them so well, you get to know them so intimately. I'd imagine, you know, you would just love to meet them. But are there times when even a fellow like Frederick, you would have some empathy for, you know. You yeah, might- look, I, I felt sorry for him uh, in yeah. many respects. Even though he was a serial killer, I have no sympathy or pity for anyone who kills their own kids. I just don't understand right. that. That's right. alien to me and alien to yeah. all of us. But I, I could, there are parts of his character. Um, he just absolutely wanted to lift himself up out of his Lancashire working class roots, and he wanted to be recognised as someone from a higher level in society. You know, he grew up in class-based England. Uh, his brothers all worked at the Laird Brothers shipyard on the Mersey up near Liverpool in the filth of that place, the noise. Yeah. They, went back to, they went back home every late every day to little stone houses with tiny backyards, and he wanted something better. So he travelled the world. He became a sailor. He was essentially just a thief and a comrade. He wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed either. But there's a moment where... He actually uh, has to escape because he's married another woman in Yorkshire and he's already pilfered a lot of jewellery to give to her and the police are now about to catch him. So he decides to do a runner and he leaves her. He says, I'm just going out for a bit of a shave and a haircut. I'll be back in a minute. You order a pot of tea. They're in a hotel room. He goes down the road, gets on a train, goes to London, then goes straight down to Portsmouth and jumps on a ship going to Uruguay where he thinks there is no extradition treaty so he can get away. On that ship, he poses as a wealthy diamond merchant and because he's wearing all these diamond rings he's stolen. And he organises a party on the deck of the ship one night and he decides to do a song. And he starts singing the song called The Old Dead Horse, which is a, a famous old thing that sailors sing after a month at sea. But he drops all these H's and suddenly he's exposed as just another working class lad who's trying to pass himself off as a posh diamond merchant and he doesn't even see the people around him sniggering and laughing at him. And we know about this because there were two people on board that ship who gave later accounts of what happened uh, at that thing. And that's when I felt a little bit sorry for him because I think we all kind of know that feeling of embarrassment and humiliation and wanting to be better and wanting to be accepted by those around us. So there was that small part, but he was the sort of bloke that I was worrying about it in the, first, in the early stages of research how am I going to get this character developed enough so that readers will either feel something for him or at least want to persist with a long story that can be quite complex at times? Mm. And then I came across Sidney Dickinson. He was the journalist writing for the New York Times. He was living in Melbourne at the time. And then I found a book that he wrote, and it happened like 25 years later, and it was the only book he ever wrote, and it's just his memoirs about Frederick Deeming and his experiences with his own wife, who was a spirit medium. And eventually, I think Sydney came to believe that there were spirits and ghosts there. And he writes this extraordinary account of this house in Melbourne at the time of Deeming's execution, when Deeming's ghosts began haunting them. And he had to rely on his wife to say, oh, there's a creepy little girl figure over there, and she's singing to us. There's another ghost down the hallway, and there are poltergeists in the kitchen. And he started to believe it. Or if he didn't believe it, then he was at least, you know, humouring his wife. And you've got this beautiful, rich, well, overwritten 
in the typical late 19th century style, you know, it's just full of clauses and commas and sentences go on for a page and a half. Very tough one to read. But when I found all of that, I thought, this is a treasure trove. I've got a character here that I can use to introduce Frederick Deeming to the reader, and we can follow Sidney Dickinson and Frederick Deeming through the book, and we can develop them as opposite sort of characters, which mm-hmm. is what I did. Because without Sidney Dickinson, it would have been a much colder and more aloof kind well, of Well, one-dimensional, I think. You know, yeah. I think it just gave yeah. life. So you need those characters. You need you characters. And, and I always try and write nonfiction almost like a novel or a screenplay. Mm. I, I, you need to bring it to life. It, it shouldn't be a book filled with footnotes and clauses and brackets and no, no, just no. references to documents. It should be warm and it should invite the well, reader into a, a tale. A human story, and mm. I think that that's what you're really good at. Well, we better let you go, Gary. Great conversation. The book is called The Devil's Work. Gary Linnell, thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.